This is The Lid Is On. I'm Connor Lennon. This is the last in our mini-series, Humanitarian Leadership Stories, produced in collaboration with the UN Humanitarian Office, OCHA. For this final episode, Daniel Johnson hears how humanitarians in hotspots such as Gaza, Haiti and Libya are helping those hit by chronic conflict to become more resilient. Welcome to this podcast, UN Humanitarian Leadership Stories in Their Own Words. Fascinating insight from frontline responders who are helping people with acute needs in some of the most challenging and dangerous places in the world. From UN News in association with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. For more podcasts from the United Nations, go to the UN News Audio Hub. In today's episode, we'll be exploring why it's so important for aid teams to not just deliver emergency life-saving aid, but also to tackle root causes of these crises at grassroots level. Success in both is crucial if communities are to get back on their feet and resist future shocks caused by conflict and climate change, two of the main drivers of humanitarian crises and people being forced to leave their homes. When you have a flooding, people won't wait for humanitarian actors to turn up, they'll find their own solutions. And if we're not there quickly, those solutions can have uh, consequences which are negative. It's quite difficult sometimes to identify, to name clearly what is a humanitarian need in Haiti because most of it is chronic lack of development. But the way to make the case in Haiti for humanitarian assistance is to have a, a narrative that speaks about how to reduce risk, how to reduce vulnerabilities in order to reduce humanitarian need. UN aid coordinators Julian Harness in Pakistan and Bruno Lomarquis in Haiti. We'll be hearing from them later and other UN humanitarian leaders in the occupied Palestinian territories, Ethiopia, Libya and Lebanon. It's a packed show, so let's get started. Part 1. Choices, Hard Choices and COVID. Delivering life-saving aid and addressing the root causes of emergencies are equally important to humanitarian coordinators. But in countries in crisis, there are often countless obstacles to recovery and long-term development projects. Fighting could still be going on, for instance, or it could have flared up again. Where this is the case, the immediate priority has to be emergency aid assistance. In the occupied Palestinian territories, there's yet another complication – politics. In the blink of a news headline, hard-won aid delivery deals can get cancelled. And that's exactly what happened to former UN top aid official in the occupied Palestinian territories, Jamie McGoldrick, when cooperation on combating COVID-19 in the early days of the pandemic suddenly vanished. It was all down to political point scoring. And here he is now, speaking from Jerusalem in September 2020, which I should point out was before conflict between Israel and Hamas erupted in May 2021. 
in the beginning of the crisis, March, the part of the first phase, we had very good cooperation between Israel and Palestine. I speak to the Israelis every day about how we work into Gaza and inside West Bank. They've given us assurances and we've seen that demonstrated where equipment for humanitarian and more specifically for COVID, they've been very permissive towards that. Unfortunately, as soon as the Israeli authorities indicated they wanted to annex the West Bank, the cooperation between Palestine and Israel ceased. So we actually had to do a lot more in terms of bridging or being intermediary between the two parties to allow us to have a coherent response. Because as you know, viruses and disease, they don't respect boundaries. So when you've got West Bank, Gaza, and you've got Israel sandwiched in between North and South, we have to find a way of having that cooperation put in place by the UN. So that was something we've had to add to what we were already doing. And in Gaza is one of the most overcrowded parts of the world. So if it goes deep embedded into the community, we face a massive problem with two million people locked into a territory which is only 42 kilometers long. So we've been very much in the acceleration mode to try and contain where it is right now. So elective surgeries, for example, have had to be put on the back burner. We're now starting to find a way of locating hospitals and clinics that could do the primary health care and take the pressure off the main hospitals who are doing the COVID response. The unfortunate part is that Gaza's got a very overstretched uh, health system anyway. It's been underfunded, under-resourced for, for decades. You've got 13 years of a blockade. So the supplies with material and equipment into it in general is always underwhelming. It's a tough working environment, but as aid workers often say, if it wasn't, they wouldn't be there. Here's some of Jamie McGoldrick's priorities. What we have to do is the UN and the you know WHO and others, we've had to step in and do, for example, patient transfer, people coming out from Gaza to get a permit without the cooperation for a permit, without the cooperation for the referral and without the cooperation for payment. We in the UN have had to be that bridge for the import of humanitarian goods into West Bank and Gaza through the airport. The only airport that's serving both areas is Ben Gurion in Israel. Uh, we've had to set up the logistics cluster under WFP, which actually works in the airport and then connects with the both parties, one to allow customs clearance and the other one to give permission for it to come in. And that has worked very, very well because I think we're all, despite the lack of political cooperation, there's a sort of, I would say, humanitarian or health diplomacy that's taking place and the UN and the humanitarians are very much at the forefront of that. Part two, a problem shared. In addition to war and COVID-19, natural hazards are putting more people in harm's way, as climate change impacts on their lives and livelihoods. In Ethiopia, even before the crisis erupted in Tigray last November, COVID-19 is estimated to have tripled the number of people in need of help to 15 million. All the more important then to ensure that development projects are put in place with vulnerable communities with the support of central government. That's easier said than done, but as we hear from the UN's former top aid official in the Ethiopian capital, Dr Catherine Sozi, she saw how it could be achieved as a health worker with UNAIDS in the fight against HIV. At the beginning there was no treatment and we were dealing with palliative care and then when treatment came on board, the issues of access, the issues of really planning with a community response at the centre of what it is, that people needed to be at the centre of any planning and not only just for, you know, consulting and getting their points of views, but actually actively and meaningfully engaged in the response because unless you get that need, the resources that come will be wasted. And so I think that even 
though at the beginning it was very difficult in the HIV response, they reached a peak when initially people did not believe that antiretrovirals could be used in Africa, for instance. And now you've got a situation where each and every African government owned the epidemic, owned and really remembered that the citizens, the people that are living with HIV that are part of their countries are their citizens. They don't belong to the donors. And so the ownership and trying to push governments to own and put their own resources towards supporting the HIV response is for me is what I'm pushing the same kind of mechanism. There's no point in reinventing the wheel. You're listening to UN humanitarian leadership stories in their own words. Fascinating first-hand insight from frontline responders tackling emergencies all over the world. Part 3, Thinking on Your Feet From Ethiopia to Pakistan, where catastrophic flooding presents a huge development challenge, uprooting thousands of families every year. For the UN's top aid coordinator there, Julian Harness, what's most important is getting to those affected as quickly as possible. When I spoke to him, he was just back from visiting Sindh province in the south of the country, where rising waters had affected 2.4 million people in more than 15,000 villages across nine districts. In Sindh specifically, the people there are very vulnerable, a community that's somewhat marginalised and that has been repeatedly hit by flooding. The flooding's been vast. I mean thousands and thousands of acres are flooded and there is no place dry except for the raised roads. People are sleeping out along these roads and infested with mosquitoes, clearly no latrines, no shelter, no water to drink, little in the way of food. So our immediate assistance that was absolutely critical was access clean water and, and hygiene in the first days and then to bring in the rest of it. That community wasn't waiting for us to come and uh, deliver humanitarian assistance. They'd taken on debt. They were finding their own solutions, solutions which were making their future development prospects worse, but you know, it was getting them through the today. And the sort of what I, talking to them last week, what I took away from it was the importance of speed in the humanitarian response. When you have a flooding, people won't wait for humanitarian actors to turn up, they'll find their own solutions. And if we're not there quickly, those solutions can have uh, consequences which are negative, and that's you know, taking on debt, which means not being able to send your children to school and not getting kids into healthcare. So speed of response, or whatever it is we're doing, was the sort of key lesson I took away from that. Part four, problem solving in Libya. The aim of the UN's development projects is to build people's resilience and promote lasting peace among communities. In Libya, people need that more than ever, after years of fighting that have split the country apart, with rival administrations in the east and west. For the former UN aid chief there, Yakub El Hilou, despite the need for emergency relief, long-term and sustainable development solutions have never been so important. Here's some insight into his discussions with the Libyan authorities. I agree that there are no quick fixes in Libya because the problems are deep. But some of these basic humanitarian needs and issues, I believe, can be addressed quite swiftly because Libya, as we said, is a country that has the means. And when that is coupled with know-how that comes from 
many in the international community, but certainly including the UN and our humanitarian partners, I think these humanitarian needs are going to be addressed quite uh, swiftly. We will have longer term issues when it comes to protection and human rights. We will have longer term issues when it comes to assistance to migrants and refugees. And that is a conversation that must continue to be had with the Libyan authorities with a view of setting up systems and policies and not just say it's kind to help others because you are a rich country. It doesn't work that way. So this has to come with programs. We talked about the need for Libya to have a migration policy. I think this is a long term, not just humanitarian imperative. It is actually a long term development requirement because Libya will need that regulated flow of workforce to come and work in this country. Libya is also a country that is in need of huge improvement, uh, strengthening and building of institutions. And I think this is an area that will occupy a lot of the agenda in the next phase once all the guns have gone silent. Libya will have a very big problem dealing with elements that have been part of the fighting machinery, whichever side you're talking about. Moving from the logic of force to the force of logic, i.e. employing peaceful means to make a living. And here is where viable alternatives will need to be made because not everybody can join the national army, not everybody can join the police. People will have to actually leave the militarized vocations and go into civilian life again. But that will require a lot of support, know-how, knowledge transfer from other settings where these programs have worked. Part 5. Haiti. Sustainable development for government and rule of law. From Libya to Haiti, which was recently devastated by a terrible earthquake and tropical storm Grace. The Caribbean nation is in political crisis too. Its president, Juvenal Moyes, was assassinated in his residence in July 2021. And worsening gang violence has made humanitarian aid deliveries too dangerous in some areas. That's bad news because Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, with around 1.5 million people facing emergency hunger levels. Into this staggeringly complex development challenge, enter Bruno Lemarquis. He's the UN's top aid coordinator in the country. As he tells us, the solution lies in bringing in local aid and development partners to share their analysis on needs, risks and vulnerabilities, to hammer out short and long-term priorities, an approach that Bruno Lemarquis calls the Nexus approach. Right now, the insecurity is taking the form of uh, waves of kidnapping. So often it's instability together with uh, security issues. It's a country that has very severe development deficits and governance deficits. One issue is on the rule of law side, the lack of rule of law and uh, impunity. Among those, I would name governance issues. I would name the uh, economic model of Haiti, which is largely a rent economy with an economic elite. I would name the uh, prevalence of corruption throughout. So you have those reasons that are very much uh, linked between the political system, the economic model and corruption that prevent Haiti from moving forward on its development trajectory. And it's quite difficult sometimes to identify, to name clearly what is a humanitarian need in, in Haiti because most of it is chronic lack of development. That's why it's harder than in other countries, like war-torn countries, countries really affected by conflict and so on, to make the case for humanitarian assistance. But the way to make the case in Haiti for humanitarian assistance is to have a 
a narrative that speak about how to reduce risk, how to reduce vulnerabilities in order to reduce humanitarian need. And we are really trying to push in Haiti to convince donors that in order to reduce those humanitarian needs, you need to fix the problem. But at the same time, you still need to cater for those acute vulnerabilities and the most affected people. It's tough to work in the neighborhood. It's really tough because of the gang violence. Yeah? So it's a different way of working. And right now, together with Oksha, we are working on developing an access strategy, which is uh, usually it's more for war affected countries. So here it's a different type of access. We need to have a better way, better networks, better contacts within the neighborhood, community leaders, civil society group, local NGOs who work inside the neighborhoods and who can work with the UN in facilitating access. But it's really tough. The gang violence and the gang phenomenon in Haiti has grown tremendously and it's really affecting even the fabric of the country. Within the country team, what we have been working on over the past three months is to rebalance our country team. We are bringing a lot more NGOs, including five national NGOs. I am very, very hopeful that it will change the conversation within our country team, that it will be more grounded. There will be a better understanding of local dynamics. And uh, I think it will be an eye opener for all of us. We interviewed all of them face to face. I challenged them and I asked them, what are you going to bring? Those organizations, they have a deep knowledge of the country, they have a deep knowledge of, of the dynamics and so on. But I think what they bring more than anything else is the fact that fundamentally they are development organization working when needed in emergency and not the other way. Part six, credit where credit's due, the cash assistance conundrum. A key aim of humanitarian assistance is to help people who've been through an emergency to become self-sufficient. One way to do this is to offer a very small amount of cash to people that they can spend themselves. The Covid pandemic has also forced aid agencies to think differently about aid delivery, as it made aid access across borders much more difficult and expensive, at least during the early part of the crisis in 2020. But giving cash to people who've been displaced by conflict or disaster can be a touchy subject. Critics warn that aid money may be misspent or misdirected, although experience says otherwise. From a humanitarian standpoint, supporting cash assistance has the advantage of giving back dignity to vulnerable people, and that's something that no amount of money can buy. Here's Najat Roshdi, United Nations Humanitarian and Resident Coordinator in Lebanon. Cash assistance is always very complicated to implement it, and one has to put in place a very rigorous, you know, monitoring system and harmonization as well. But, you know, I met with the father. He was there for a food distribution. And he told me, I mean, he said, thank you very much. Yes, it's great. But he told me, you know, for me, I will feel that my dignity is preserved if I am able actually to bring to the house all what we used to have, maybe not the same way, but at least I come to the house with something in a basket with the number of, uh, you know, food, product, whatever, and then uh, this is cooked at the house. And yes, I can go and ask my child, what do you want to eat today? And maybe today is rice, tomorrow it's olives, uh, the day after it's something else. So in terms of the value, it's exactly the same. Whether we give it, we monetize it, or we give it in kind. But in terms of 
preserving the dignity of the people, making sure that they feel that they are in charge. That is so important. So it's not only an economic approach. No, it's really about the people again, and it's about making them feel that they are in charge. If there is one sentence I would describe my job with, it's about the people. It's about supporting the people. It's about making sure that there is always a light in the middle of the darkness. It's about building a better future, and it's about helping and triggering the transformation the people want. Najat Roshti there sharing insights and thoughts on what it means to be a humanitarian leader in Lebanon today. For more episodes from this series and to see short video profiles and insights from other aid chiefs from Burkina Faso to Syria, just search online for OCHA and Humanitarian Leadership Stories now. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>